1: I am Dean Linky, thrilled to be with each of you and delighted to just sit by the fireside or go for a walk with this edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Christian Lavers, the ECNL president and CEO, spends the next 40 minutes or so with Doug Lamov, who is out with a new book. In fact, the book was due to hit yesterday, December 8th, and it is called Coach's Guide to Teaching. Doug Lamov is a managing director of Uncommon Schools and leads its Teach Like a Champion team, designing and implementing teacher training based on the study of high-performing teachers. He is the author of Teach Like a Champion 2.0 and co-author of Practice Perfect and, as I just mentioned, author of this new gem of a read, Coach's Guide to Teaching. I can tell you that Christian's visit with Doug on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, was not just a lesson in soccer. This was a podcast for every parent homeschooling, every coach at every level in every sport, every teacher remote teaching, and every manager on Zoom. The knowledge Doug shares with Christian, and to be fair, the insight that Christian offers about Doug's book, well, it breaks the lines of soccer. Jason Cutney, ECNL Boys Commissioner, calls Doug LaMov, and I quote, one of the best presenters of teaching information I have ever seen in person, and he added that this podcast was excellent, a great listen, end quote. I agree with Mr. Cutney, and I believe you will too, as I will hand over the show to ECNL President and CEO Christian Labors, a very smart and well-read man himself, for his visit with Doug LaMov, out with a new book, called coach's guide to teaching and we bring you that interview after this quick message from the ecnl
0: as the game continues to evolve in the united states the ecnl remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer the elite clubs national league has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country with a robust competition platform for teams educational resources for coaches and clubs and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league.
1: This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. I'm Dean Linky with Christian Labors, the CEO and president of the ECNL. And this one is all Christian because I tell you what, this guest is big time. He's so big time, we're going to let Christian run the entire 45 minutes with it. And in fact, Christian, I'm going to let you introduce this guest. I'm going to sit back and enjoy. I'm super excited to learn about his new book. And I'm also hoping to get a book, Doug. That's a little Little hint right there, but Christian, take it away with the intro and take it away with the interview. And Doug, for me, welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks, Dean.
2: Hey, Doug, we're really excited to have you here. Doug Lemoff, longtime educator, been involved in league coaching education initiatives for a couple of years. One of, if not the most popular presenter we've ever had at our coaching symposium when he came out to San Diego a couple of years ago. New York Times best-selling author of Practice Perfect and Teach Like a Champion and now coming out on December 8 a new book The Coach's Guide to Teaching a book taking I believe Doug and I don't want to steal your probably more accurate description but a book taking all of your knowledge of pedagogy and teaching and cognitive science and bringing it into the realm of sports and even specifically soccer. So we're really excited to have you here to talk through this book, some of the really interesting information you have in it to help coaches be better. So maybe I'll take a step back, ask you to describe your book better than I did, and maybe why you chose to write this book and why I write it now.
3: Okay, well, thanks. And thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk to you and all your coaches. In addition to being an educator, I'm a dad. I have father of several athletes. And I'm just grateful to the influence that coaches have had in their lives. My background is in studying teaching. And obviously I think that's arguably the most important work in society. And uh, But I have I played soccer in college and I do some work on the side for various sports federations. And at some point, US Soccer Federation asked me to do a presentation for coaches on teaching. So I, I did what I do in my day job, which is I brought in videos of teachers teaching in their math and English and history and science classrooms and showed little two-minute clips of, you know, these are things that teachers think about. And this is, let's look at some game film and think about what these teachers are doing and why. It was a fascinating experience because coaching is teaching, just in a different setting. And so I found that a lot of the challenges and the problems of teaching applied in the coaching setting, but they're also different. And there are a lot of questions that I just couldn't answer during those first workshops. And so I just kind of set out to try to understand them as best I could. Particularly, I think one of the things we have going for us as teachers right now is is cognitive science. There's such an explosion of understanding of how the brain works that it's either, depending on how you see it, an opportunity or a challenge to begin informing what we do and how we interact with young people who are trying to learn
2: by understanding what that science tells us. Well, and there's been a disconnect in some ways between what cognitive science says and what sometimes happens, probably to some degree, even in, even in the teaching profession sometimes, but certainly in the coaching profession. Absolutely. Um, Definitely true of both, of both, both professions. Yeah. And so we've talked in the past, and sometimes when, if you're not aware of what cognitive science says about what people learn, and maybe that we should be clear on, cognitive science is actually about how the brain works for people to learn. Yeah. Um, if there's not an understanding of that sometimes you can end up doing certain things as a coach that actually make it more difficult for the player to learn. And then you end up in this sort of blame the learner mentality when you don't know the reason why it's not working, but it may have something to do with the methodology. And I'm sure some of your thoughts in here were to provide some information to help coaches not make some of these basic mistakes that may be fixed if they understand a little bit more about the learning process
3: yeah and maybe just you know frame from the other side of the coin also like everyone wants to be successful right? you work hard for the uh, for the kids in your club and you want to you want to make a difference in their lives and if you're going to put in the time just like your kids you want you want to tra- you want to practice hard and then you want to win i think from a learning and developing people standpoint you want to put in the, you want to put in the time and you want to work hard for the people you work with and then you want to be successful and see them grow to the greatest degree possible and so i think maybe that's that's a lot of what the book is about which is you know here are things that you can do hopefully some small changes probably also some some slightly larger changes that you can use to get a little bit more out of every training session a little bit more learning a little bit more progress for all
2: your athletes well and before we jump into some specific questions in the book i mean i think it's a little bit of an understatement to say that you've worked with the federation or two you've worked and and talked with some of the leading sports personalities in some ways all over the globe and You certainly have helped train tens of thousands of educators through your books and your workshops and the presentations. I think what's really cool about this book is that these are not, to use an analogy, this is not sort of academic comparisons of teaching and coaching. You get right into the details and into the real context of the field and what's happening with coaches in real life. So this isn't some theoretical book, this is very practical.
3: Yeah, well, thanks. I, I'm glad that it felt that way. I tried really hard to, you know, I'm not a cognitive scientist uh, or a cognitive psychologist. I'm a layperson. person, uh, you know, full disclosure, I was an English major, <laughs> but uh, I just tried to, you know, I do love reading about cognitive science. I think it's really important to educators and I tried to take it and not just describe the cognitive science, but then think about, so like what does this mean on the soccer field and how does it apply? If you're thinking about working memory and overloads on working memory, okay, I can describe to you the research on that and maybe what it means for a teacher, but like what are some situations in which it might specifically apply when I'm coaching soccer? And honestly, like one of the big challenges of of writing the book was do I write this as a soccer coaching book or do I write this as a coaching, a sports coaching book? And in the end, I decided to try and make the great majority of my examples through the lens of soccer because I think it's the sport that I know I know best. And I just think it's important to you know, respect the, the domain knowledge of the field. But I also know that there, you know, almost every reader, certainly, you know, the reader, your readers who, who run clubs and coach at a high level, there are going to be times when the only thing I know for sure about the book is that it's wrong or you know, <laughs> uh, and describing building out of the back. My examples are are imperfect, or I've missed something that that uh, you know coaches know more than me. So I definitely also just want to put a, a flag on the ground that I, I
2: tried to approach it with a lot of humility and recognize that. But I was writing about a field of expertise where I was an outsider. But it's not even that I think, and and this comes across clearly in the book too, is that you're also talking about topics where even the most credentialed expert in the world yeah. doesn't necessarily have a clear answer. When you talk about Perception and memory, and some of those topics. So, you are navigating some uncharted waters yeah. with research as your guide, but obviously trying to make it practical. And I, and I think, again, academic studies are interesting, but translating them into context is the challenge. And I think your book's done a, a really good job of trying to bridge that gap and make this something that, whatever chapter you start with, you can walk away with some things that will help you run a better club, run a better training session even have better relationships with your athlete, potentially. I hope so. Let's dive in right away. The first chapter of the book talks a lot about perception, the importance of perception, and specifically within the realm of decision-making, background knowledge. That's an area where there's been some debate, right, between perception, information processing, theories, and others. But you use a term distinguishing the signal from the noise, which I think everybody can kind of relate to but maybe talk about that term distinguish the signal from the noise and how that connects to what athletes see on the the field and how coaches can use this information to to teach
3: better well I decided to lead with this chapter Uh, it's called the ability to decide because soccer in particular is a a decision-making game right and we've all seen those players who are gifted athletes or individually skilled and they cannot—they cannot rise to the, to the level that they could potentially rise to because their decisions are imperfect, or reliably wrong, or, in game or inconsistent, or whatever. You know. And then you add to that the biggest challenge of soccer is not just that it's an individual—that it requires individual decision making, but that it requires coordinated decision making across eleven people, fast and often faster than you can than you can think consciously. And so there are all these levels of decision-making that have to be really great. So, you know, and this is where I, this is how I kind of got into reading the cognitive science and the cognitive science is actually pretty clear in this. The first chapter is full of it. That the thing that you need to be able to make the decision is the first thing you need is to, you need to be able to, you need to be looking at the right things that oftentimes will say to a player, what should you do here? But that question isn't really the right question. It's what should you be looking at? Because if you're not looking at the right things, you're not looking at the cue, you're not looking at, you know, at the places you could pass the ball, then you don't even see the options that exist. And so a big part of being an athlete is learning to look for the signal and not the noise. And early in this chapter, I show this, what I think is really fascinating video of two piano players. One of them is a world-class expert and one of them is his student who's a very good novice. And they're wearing eye-tracking glasses when they play So you can see what they look at. And the really interesting thing is that you would think that one of the marks of expertise would be that an expert's eyes would take in more information than a novice's in a situation, but actually his range of eye movement is much less than hers. And what that tells us, and by the way, there's a similar video of Cristiano Ronaldo essentially doing the same thing. Uh, They put eye tracking glasses on him when he's approaching a defender. And what you find is that experts know where to look for the cue that tells them what to do next, and their eyes are actually quieter, this is a scientific term, the quiet eye, than novices whose eyes are nervously scanning the field for what they're not exactly sure. And so the, being able to look for the signal, the cue, the thing that tells you what to do, as opposed to scanning, you know, nervously for noise, is one of the most important marks of expertise. And it just struck me that we don't spend enough time thinking about athletes' eyes, you know, even who, uh, I, talk, I talk about... Albert Pujols in the book, who who in their early 20th century was the the best hitter in the major leagues. And the key to hitting a fastball in the major leagues is reading the cue from the pitcher before he releases the ball. Because the ball arrives at home plate in four tenths of a second, which is faster than you can have a conscious thought. And so for years, people thought, oh, we'll make baseball players better hitters by teaching them reaction time, fast hands. But it turns out that Pujols actually has below average reaction time. What he's great at is reading cues from the pitcher as the pitcher is getting ready to deliver the ball that tell him, fastball or slider. Uh, Where's the the pitch coming? He's reading hip rotation and uh, angle and arm channel and things like that. But he's not even aware that he does this. If you asked him what makes him a great hitter, he would say, oh, it's my bat speed. Um, And so it was this happy accident somewhere in his life of someone somewhere, some accident taught him to read the cues that told him what decisions to make, and it's not much different in soccer. What we call instinct or IQ or game, you know game knowledge, is often understanding where to look to, to so I so I see the signal and not the noise. And for the players for whom that works, it's often a happy accident. In other words, no one intentionally set out to teach them to look better. They just see the game better. And for the players who that doesn't happen, could we make it different? <laughs> is there some degree to which we're failing them if they never really learn to read and see the game and we're always shouting at them because they make terrible decisions because they're, they're, they're looking left when they need to be looking right or they're looking away from the defender when, they're, when they should be looking at the defender's front foot to decide how to attack so, him, et cetera.
2: So one, one of the things I hear you saying here is that it, it's not just about when to look or or not even where to look it actually goes deeper than that into what specifically are you looking for and at some level we all know this right because our eyes take in billions of pieces of information of everything around us and yet our brain focuses on i don't even know what the percentage is i think you reference it in the book but point whatever percent of the information that comes in our brain actually brings to our conscious attention or even finds relevant but when you put that into the context of a, of a soccer player making decisions, it should make you think or make you pause on how you maybe intervene with a player, yeah. because it is quite possible that they are literally not even seeing the appropriate information to make a decision, no matter how obvious you as a coach think it is. You said a couple of things that I think are really important
3: there. One is how you intervene. Yes, I think it's worth thinking about whether what do you see? or what should you look at is a better question than what should you do, right? Because if I ask a player, what do I see? And he tells me there's no pressure on the, on the, you know, he's a center back. There's no pressure on the man with the ball it tells me that he knows what his cue is to determine how tight to mark. And so now I just need to tell him, okay, so there's no pressure on the wall. What does that mean you should do? But if I ask him what he sees and he tells me some random detail, or, you know, then I know he doesn't know where his eyes should go. And that I can ask him what he should do, but if I, want to, if I want him to be able to do it on his own, the first thing I have to do is tell him what to look for. So he can be an autonomous decision maker. So that's critical. The second thing is because we understand the game, we see and understand what's happening, but our players don't necessarily. And that's because we have much better background knowledge. And so one, we're sort of fooled by what's obvious to us is not actually obvious to young players. And two, uh, there's this huge opportunity to build background knowledge intentionally mm-hmm. and that And this is one of the big surprises of cognitive science and the the cognitive scientists, I I quote Daniel Willingham talking about this, which is people believe that knowing facts and having knowledge is the opposite of higher order thinking and problem solving and that that somehow you interfere with problem solving if you cause people to know basic facts and knowledge about an, an endeavor, but in fact, it's the opposite, critical thinking is domain specific. You can only think deeply about things that you know about. So if you want people to think deeply and perceive a lot about the game of soccer, you have to give them a lot of background knowledge and they have to understand concepts like between the lines and and spacing and things like that. And so like there's some curriculum work to be done if you really want players to be autonomous and to make effective decisions and to perceive well and to learn from
2: experience. The tricky part here is some of the things you talk to, when you hear them, they sound simple, but it's the old phrase, maybe simple to understand, not simple to do. Yeah. Um, a couple of examples that maybe you can comment on. One being somebody who's never seen a soccer game before will see 22 people running around on a field in two different colors, right? Yeah. And, the, and they won't see much more depth or sophistication than that. Then you go to the next, somebody with a little bit of experience now knows that, well, there's some players that are maybe forward in the, in the an attacking area. There's some players in the middle. There's some players in the back, and so they start to see this group of eleven as mm-hmm. a four three three, or a four four two, or whatever the general shape of the team tends to be. And then you, you go further in experience, and then you'll see somebody who instantly can see in a back four when a player may be out of position because there's too much space between one back with another in defense or something like that. But that sort of increasing ability to chunk or to recognize instantly what is the system and then what is the context and the the exact positioning of these players is a factor of really, really complex brain function and learning and distinguishing relevant versus irrelevant information. So is that kind of what you're speaking about when you're talking about this back, the, the role of background information?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it, which is uh, one thing is, you know, a lot of it is, uh, is experience and knowledge and the aggregation of thousands of iterations of background knowledge, which means like players have to start seeing and understanding the game as it looks when it will be played at a very young age. You won't be able to turn, if you want players to start making sophisticated decisions at age 14 or 16, you will not be able to turn it on and suddenly say, great, let's start making decisions unless they've seen it all along. Because chunking is in some ways a product of experience. But I, I, I tell the story in this book of, uh, I, don't, I don't name him, but I'll name him here. <laughs> I was sitting at a Philadelphia union game with Ian Monroe who uh, played in the Scottish Premier League and in, in, in the Premier League. And he's literally eating a sandwich and talking to me and out of the corner of the, his, his eye, he suddenly says, the left back is out of position, he's exposed. And I look down at the field and like three seconds later, long guy, you know, he says he's, he's, tur- he's lost his man. He's turned inside to try to correct and he's going to get burnt. And three seconds later, all over the top to the, the man he's left unmarked and it's, uh, it's one nothing for the opposition. Literally, he's barely paying attention to the game. And he saw this and he saw this because he described to me has a mental model for what the back line should look like. He describes it as being like a teacup, like a tea saucer. Uh, That's the sort of shape to him that it should look like. But a lot of people have mental models without having words for them. But basically something looked out of place to him. That is the product of, of years and years and years of experience. And so even barely looking, something snaps to him when he sees it out of place and he knows that it's wrong. So one, there's a lot of experience there. But I think two, there's also there are ways to accelerate the rate at which players learn. And I think that vocabulary is one of the ways to do that, right? You start to look for things that you understand and the things that you understand are things that you can often name. You know, you think about like daughter plays in a, in a really great club and she had one coach who talked about receiving on the half turn and one coach who talked about receiving side on. As far as I know, those are the same thing. But because they use different language for it, she failed to connect. <laughs> so one Until she had this term, receiving a side on, she probably watched hundreds of players receive the ball side on and never noticed it and never paid attention to it. and So never learned to really watch for that and to understand how it plays a role in the game of of soccer. But then because she was referring to it by inconsistent terms, half of her experience about that, that idea did not coalesce into her mind. So she got half as many iterations of understanding that. And so if we want players to understand the game, We should be really attentive to language about consistency of language across the club so one just naming something allows people to see it and understand it and and start to recognize when it's happening around them you could watch a game of soccer and learn almost nothing or you could watch a game of soccer and be looking for things that someone has helped you to understand about the game and all of a sudden be learning 10 times more and then if you have vocabulary to discuss it and describe it and that vocabulary is consistent suddenly you have really powerful learning tool. So if I'm a club, one of the first things that I want to do is have a list of, like, here's our vocabulary list of the terms that we're going to use to describe important things. We're going to be consistent so that the U10 coach and the U14 coach and the U18 coach are all talking the same language and kids are looking for the same things when they're, when they're playing
2: and they talk about them the same way. You talk about boiling things down to simple things. Sometimes you improve development just by getting out of your own way. Having terms that are used differently or interchangeably that have not been clearly defined, just present obstacles for the player to learn at the speed you like. Take the term breaking the lines, by the way. How often
3: does a coach say you got to break the lines to the look? what percentage of kids understand that, really understand what that means when it gets said to them at U14? I, I guarantee you that. In many clubs, half, two thirds of the kids are like nodding away when that term is used and they have no idea what it means. Or they understand it vaguely, but not not sufficiently to
2: pragmatically imagine how they might use it in a game. That's that's another culture issue, right? Because kids are are great at at nodding along and saying yes, when they have no idea what they're talking about, but they don't want to look silly. Or maybe they do think they know, but what they think and what you think are not the same. Which is another interesting piece, right? Yeah, no, it's
3: great. Chapter four is all about this idea of checking for understanding, which is how do you understand you know, yeah, what? How do you understand the gap between I taught it and they learned it? And of course, kids won't really tell you because they don't know either. <laughs> if I ask someone, "Do you understand?" they will say yes because they understand what they do understand, but they don't. There are a lot of things that they don't yet know that they don't understand that they can't identify for me. And so, you know, a very small thing I talk about in the book is just this: like we constantly ask this question. Everybody got it? You know, and so everyone nods and says yes. And I guarantee you that that is a false signal. And so if you could just replace that with like, great. So that's what defensive body position looks like. Christian, what do you? Uh, what should your, uh, you know, what should your upper body look like when you're defending? Good. And Carlos, uh, where? Should you, how should your feet be positioned? Great. Jason, show me what that looks like. Great. Now let's try it. Right. Just a series of quick questions to gather objective data as opposed to self-report data. If you ask people if they think they understand something, they will always tell you yes
2: for a variety of reasons yeah we should give a prize out for the first coach who can say they got a no i don't understand what you're saying answer (laughs) that's right
1: you're listening to breaking the line the ecnl podcast as christian labors the ecnl president and ceo visits with doug lamov out with a new book this week in fact called coach's guide to teaching we come back christian and doug dive into a chapter about forgetting he'll explain it all right here after this message
0: ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade. The studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL.
1: We now return to more of this week's edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast as ECNL president and CEO Christian Lavers visits with Doug Lamov out with a new book this week called Coach's Guide to Teaching.
2: There's a whole series of, of things about training design that probably is a lot longer conversation in terms of how do you make a training optimal for helping perception develop, but there's another piece to this which is the term that uh, you, you use in the book is spiraling and, yeah. and uh, spiraling and the forgetting curve and, and really what methodology should include so that you know that not yeah. only are you teaching this concept or take any specific behavior that you want, you can teach it on training on day five, but that doesn't necessarily mean much. Yeah. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So what is the single most Overlooked factor in learning: forgetting. Period. End of story. In schools, classroom, sports setting, everywhere. Think about this for a minute. You have forgotten almost everything that you have learned in your life. And if you doubt me, have kids wait fifteen years and try and help them with their history or their math homework. Right. And and our athletes are no different. They have forgotten almost everything that they have learned in a training session. And. The most practical application of this is to realize that performance and learning are different things. Performance is what you're able to do in the midst of training. So at the end of practice, we're working on building out of the back. And uh, by the end of practice, we look great. Everyone understands their role and, the, you know, and the, the ball is cracking out of the back, it's fast, it's on the ground, the passes are struck right. Tuesday afternoon, we're great. We're, we're ready yes. to build. And what people forget is that performance is not learning and that as soon as players walk off the field, forgetting begins. And forgetting is a ruthless and tireless enemy. And in fact, in the book, I present what's called a forgetting curve, which cognitive scientists have known about for more than a hundred years. 12 hours later, people will understand about 50%, will remember 50% of what they've learned, you know, over the course of several days, they will forget the great majority of what they've learned of anything, any group of people. So one that when you look at the end of a training session and you believe that your players know how to do something, you're wrong. They will not remember it on Saturday. Unless you use retrieval practice, which is you practice it again and bring it back into their working memory and rehearse it again. And then they will begin to forget it again afterwards. But each time they practice it again, if there's space between the rounds of practice, they'll forget it a little bit less and the forgetting will happen more slowly. I think this tells us a couple of things that are really important. Number one is that it is almost impossible for there to be anything that players could learn in a single, even a perfect training session will not be able to install something in player's long-term memory and they will likely, will likely forget most of it. So we have to come back to things and repeat them with gaps in between. So like uh, with increasingly longer spaces, there's another great phrase in the book, which is the best time to remember something is when you've begun to forget it, right? When you struggle to remember it, you, you, the neural pathways to recalling it are, are better encoded in your brain. And so ideally, if I wanted to work on building out of the back, I might work on it on on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then take a couple days off and come back to it a few days later, and then take a couple more days off and come back to it later. And those, the process of forgetting will make players struggle to remember it, which actually will make them remember it better in the long run. But unless I hit it multiple times, players are not going to remember it. I might be able to get them to, you know, to be a little bit better on Saturday. But then they're gonna, you know, they're gonna forget it, and I'm gonna be on this constant treadmill of like I thought we talked about pressing, you guys. Like, what happened to our pressing? We forgot it, coach. That's what people do, unless you come back to things multiple times and really carefully install them in long-term memory.
2: And I just think in every educational setting, the the thing that people overlook is the power of forgetting. So that's almost the holy grail in methodology, then, which is yeah. recognizing that the best training session. In the world on a topic is going to result in a very, very marginal gain of knowledge um, five days later. So it really emphasizes, especially in in development and when you're teaching players, the importance of planning, not a session, not a week, but of looking at a planning in a much more longer time horizon to make sure that all the different things, all the different behaviors that you need to teach in terms of decisions and, and perception that they're layered in time and time and time again. And you just can't do that off the cuff by saying, all right, what have we not done in a while? Let me just uh, add this to the session. Yeah, I think that's right. I suggest I suggest unit planning in sort of four to six week blocks so that you
3: can, you know, with several concepts so that the concept comes up, do it a few times, move away to some other things, come back to it, give some spacing, come back to it, give some spacing, come back to it. That to me is how you build long-term memory. And players who understand things, who understand things now and will understand them for the duration of their playing time. I think, you know, the natural instinct is to plan in one week intervals, right? Because I'm planning around the match on Saturday. What do we need to do to, you know, beat FC Wisconsin on, uh, you know, on Saturday? We need to, these two things, great, let's work on that in practice. But then really I cover things once or twice. I don't do, I don't, I don't
2: do sufficient work on them to drive them into long-term memory. and, And, you know, six weeks later, they're forgotten. The real training process has this sort of balance of the look back of what you've done and needs to be reinforced, the look forward of what you need to do to reinforce the past, but also to layer in new things. And then obviously the what is relevant now, which may tie to this week's opponent or last week's opponent, but it's sort of that constant. When I hear this and when I read your book, you feel this resonate in a way that a coach feels the balance and and the tension between what does the game tell us right now versus what do these players need in the future? And the balance between how do we adjust and adapt to maybe some really important things that need to be addressed short-term without forgetting the long-term. And I think the long-term is probably what gets sacrificed a lot when you're talking about the forgetting curve and topics and coverage.
3: I think that's right. I talk about that in uh, in chapter six, in particular, which is just the balance between long term and short term, the balance between you know winning and long term development. And I think you know, like tension is the right word for it. Does winning matter? Yeah, winning matters. <laughs> uh, that's you know, in the right way, winning matters. Like that is what it's one. Of, the desire to win is what helps you discover your limits, and it's part of the joy of sports. So you can't ignore winning. But there are also tensions between managing too much for the short-term and managing for long-term player development. And in many ways, a lot of the settings, a lot of the incentives are stacked around short-term goals of winning, right? If you don't win, suddenly your parents are like, well, maybe we should go to another club. This club's not very good. They don't win. But in the long run, ironically, if you want to do best by those parents for their kids, you have to be thinking about things like how, how do I install this knowledge for, you know, so they can do it in three years, they can do it in two years. So they're the best player they can be when they're 16 or 18. And I think that's, that's a real, it's a real challenge in the, in the profession. There's no simple resolution for it, but I think one of the important things that I talk about in that chapter is the first thing I want to do is align my parents so that who is the person with the greatest interest in my making long-term decisions in their child's benefit parents who, who are the first people shouting for short-term incentives, you know, sometimes it's parents. So if they're doing that, I have to help them see the game differently so they know what to do cheer for and what to want and what to value um, so that it's easier for my coaches and my club to make the right decisions. It's quite possible that most players spend their lives playing in, in coaching environments where the great major, majority of decisions are made for them based on short-run short run outcomes.
2: And I think another example you use in the book, the interesting part of this example is this is so typical in coaching discussions, especially with this long versus short-term development issue, but you framed it in a different way, which is, the kid who's really, really successful, um, mm-hmm. young, and then as they get older, very significantly tails off in terms of relative performance compared to you know people that were behind. Typically, that example is used within the context of early physical maturation versus then everybody else catching up and that not being enough. But you looked at it, again, we go back to perception, which is probably appropriate again as it's the first chapter about how the difference in that player, that player's tailing off long-term probably has as much or more to do with the years spent making no decisions and with no instruction on perception. And then at some age, when somebody finally says, hey, this is something you need to do and be aware of, it's not a switch that you can just flick on. They're years behind in these iterations. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. I think sadly, some of the kids that we coach the worst are the kids who are best early on right they're positive out there they're like these incredible athletic outliers and it requires an incredible amount of self-discipline to coach a player like that who can win games for us and therefore assuage our egos by feasting on balls over the top that he can run down that no one else can or you know or by taking it himself or herself in a way that you know is unsustainable in the long run but in the short run they can win games for us and everyone cheers like crazy for them and why don't you unleash and the parents want the parents are dreaming of the beautiful future of this kid and so they want to see him score four goals and they don't really care if like the goals are scored on a heavy touch (laughs) Uh, on a heavy touch in open field that's not going to exist in three years and so the discipline to be able to coach those really positive outliers for the long run, and not for the short run, and say, I know you can do that now. I know you can score three goals and win the game for me now. But if you want to be balancing that with, if you want to where you're going, you'll not be able to do that in five years. And so, like, let me teach you to play another way. Also, let me teach you to look for the you know look for your teammate, and so you understand how to find the passing lanes and things like that. Those things are critical
1: too. What a great listen, and we are not done. We return for the final segment of Christian Labor's visit with Doug LaMov, the author of a new book out this week called Coach's Guide to Teaching. When we return, they talk about feedback. Feedback for your players, so important. That after this message, stay with us.
0: Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean Linky.
1: We return to ECNL president and CEO Christian Lavers visiting with Doug Lamov talking about his new book released this week titled Coach's Guide to Teaching.
2: Chapter three of your book is about Mm -hmm. feedback. Yeah. You know, we jump from perception and background knowledge to this concept of forgetting and retrieval and and long-term memory and now going to feedback that moment in training where the coach says stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in many ways, that is like the moment where you better get the biggest ROI, right? Because (laughs) everybody's eyes and ears are turned to the coach and they're not on the stimulus of the game. So you have one very, I think, common mistake that's made. I remember when when we first talked about this and I first heard this, I said, holy cow, that's so obvious and yet so often is done wrong or I shouldn't even say done wrong. It's something that coaches don't even recognize that they're doing many times, which is the the scope of what they're saying. So why don't you talk about that in feedback? Because it's one of many great points in the in the chapter. Yeah, thanks. Um I tried to just think in that chapter about like, you know, feedback is the most
3: common thing that we do in training. And so that's great, which means if we get a little bit better at it, like it would be a huge game changer for athletes. But it's also because we're so familiar and so used to doing it, and we often reflect on least. And maybe there, there, maybe there are two related concepts that i want to get at here. One is the idea I call chasing rabbits. A coach at uh, New Zealand Rugby said this to me. He said, if you chase five rabbits, you catch none. If you're trying to do a bunch of things at once, you don't accomplish any of them. We ask players to do this all the time in training. Pause. Girls, when we're building out of the back, the ball needs to be struck at pace. It has to be struck fast. We're trying to make the de- we're trying to make the, de- the defenders move rapidly side to side. So the ball needs to move fast. It needs to be on the ground, and it needs to be struck to the you call it, usually called the back foot, the far foot, right. Um, and uh, you know, your eyes need to be up, and you need to be looking for. And Sarah, you need to be positioned here, right? Go. So I've just told players five things to do. And let's just think for a minute about like what happens when I tell someone to do five things at once. The best case scenario, so. We know from the science of working memory that you can really only hold one, possibly two ideas in working memory at a time. And that if you try and strain working memory and think about a lot of things, you're likely to degrade performance and degrade perception. So really, I want players to have one idea in their heads that they're working on if I want them to be successful. It's the well,
2: best- that, I'm gonna yeah. jump, jump right on that point because yeah. I think even that point is so important. The more things you ask them to think about, the more you degrade their ability to actually perform. Do any of and them. Yes. yes. Which is ironic because we always, we think we're going to
3: accelerate player learning by throwing in one more thing and we get feedback. Oh, and one more thing. And what, but all we're doing is diluting their focus from concentrating on one thing that could actually help them. Typically like the best case scenario is I give them five things to work on and everyone chooses, everyone maybe chooses the right thing and focuses on it. But then I have no idea what everyone's worked on. And I can't say great job. You improved at this. I saw you working on it. You got better at it. But most likely people will sort of vaguely try to think about all five of them and it will result in they're doing none of them. Uh, And I'll have to give the same five pieces of feedback again three minutes later. And players will probably play worse because their working memories will be full of things that they're um, only half able to hold. And so if I, instead of giving those five pieces of feedback, I concentrate on giving a single piece of feedback. Girls, when we're building out of the back, the ball must be struck at pace. Let's start there. I want to see every ball pinged on the ground to the, you know, to the player we're trying to reach. Let me see that now go. Right, then we do that for a couple of minutes. I say that's, uh, you know, then I can all of a sudden start doing the second thing, which is aligning my live feedback to my stoppage feedback. Yes, Sarah, that's what it looks like. Harder Vivian, strike the ball harder, right? Like then I can help players to understand whether they're using my feedback effectively and signal to them that I'm looking to see whether they use my feedback because my feedback is important. I will actually get there faster if I have five stoppages with one thing each. Then, if I try to have five stoppages or five points in a single stoppage, because then I will just be churning away on this treadmill of things I ask players to do that they can't accomplish.
2: Well, a lot of your book, I think this analogy, I believe, is in uh, the book *Atomic Habits* about the ice cube, right? And applying yeah. heat to the ice cube. That analogy reminds me of your book in the sense that there's so much going on that you can't see mm. um, in the brain of the player, and there's so much impact that everything you're doing, whether it's training design or when and how frequently you're repeating something to what you're intervening with, when you intervene and how many things you talk about when you're intervening. So much of this stuff that you can't see that is actually impacting the learner or the player. And so part of the takeaway, I think from this is that if you're very disciplined about what you're doing as a coach, you're not going to see immediate changes, but you will see consistent long-term changes. It's like the ice cube that goes from five degrees to 20 degrees. It's still an ice cube and you think nothing's been accomplished, but a lot has. And then Magically at 32 degrees, it starts to melt. And you think that, well, this must've been the answer, ignoring all the other stuff. But I think that's, your book is like that. It's deep. It's engaging. We're really excited to see it come out here again on December 8th and Appreciate you being here with us. Is there any last thoughts you'd like to share about about the book or about this process?
3: Yeah, I mean, I just just I can't all be right. <laughs> I tried to describe just a lot of uh, there has to be um, you know there have to be some things that I got I got wrong in there, but I really did try to study the game through the lens of coaches as teachers so that they could be successful and make the maximum difference in athletes' lives. And I do I just think that's a really important thing. So. Um, I can't wait to hear what coaches say and hear the feedback and continue learning alongside them. You know, that's been one of the pleasures of working with organizations like ECNL. So, so fingers crossed, and uh, and people, you know, uh, I hope coaches will be in touch and let me know what they think and what's useful and what's not.
2: Well, I know coaches in our league will read it and we'll be very thankful for it. So, Doug, I really appreciate you being here. Again, the book is A Coach's Guide to Teaching, coming out on December 8th. I'll be getting it for all the coaches in our club for sure, but we appreciate you being here. This is Christian Labors with ECNL's Breaking the Line. Thanks, Christian.
1: Yes, indeed. Thank you, Christian. And thank you, Doug. A few more thank yous as we salute Doug and Christian as well as several other key members of the ECNL crew like ECNL Boys Commissioner Jason Cutney, ECNL Girls Commissioner Jen Winnego Doug Bracken, Andrea Wheeler, all of the great people at the ECNL, including all of the great clubs, coaches, administrators, and players. A special thank you for the great perspectives and marketing support on the podcast from Mary Conway and Erica Bates. And of course, we thank Colin Thrash. Our producer. For all of them and all of you, I'm Dean Linke. Don't miss our special holiday edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, released on Wednesday, December 23rd. Stay safe, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info@theecnl.com. Breaking the line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL. More than a league.